Good to see you all here this morning, and uh, we're going to uh, dive back into our series in Acts. If you wouldn't mind uh, turning with me, we're in Acts chapter 8 this morning, working our way just gradually through this book. And uh, it's a really, it's a, a fascinating book because it's an account of the early church, an account of literally, literally kind of how things played out after Jesus left. If you've been here so far in the fall, hopefully you've enjoyed that. We're just doing a little recap here for a second. So, so far, you had it right out of the gates. If you remember Jesus' last words to the disciples, what did he tell them to do? He charged them to go and make disciples. Nice. It was called the Great Commission. That was the charge. But I find it interesting, his little caveat before they were to go do that, he said, but before you do that, I want you to wait in Jerusalem for my spirit to come upon you before you go out with this new challenge. And I found, found that interesting because he had seen how they operated in their own flesh, independent of the spirit, and it wasn't very impressive. So he said, just wait for me. I'm going to come and I'm going to empower you. And in the account in Acts, we get a, a glimpse of the amazing showing up of the Holy Spirit and how these men, how their lives were transformed. And what, one of the, the biggest ways that their lives were transformed is their boldness level went up like 10,000%. Like they went from being kind of meek and humble guys to all of a sudden bold, confident guys proclaiming Jesus Christ at every opportunity. And the thing that's interesting is that you notice in the book of Acts, as we've studied it thus far, is as they're bold and as they're confident in proclaiming Christ, there's actually fruit from their boldness. In other words, lots of people coming into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ because they stepped out of their comfort zone and proclaimed him to those around them. And it's interesting in the early uh, section of Acts, you saw different accounts of the number. First account was 3,000 being saved at Pentecost. Then you later you, you hear of, of 10,000 being saved. So after they got to about 13,000 people, the, the counters quit, and then they started just using terms like multitudes were saved, and those were being saved daily. And so this was not a little movement. Just think about that, being in a city that had an estimated 50,000 people, and imagine if it was only 13,000. That's, that's a ton. That's a high percentage of this city is seeing their lives transformed and eternities redirected because God was using this little bold band of believers to do awesome things. So this account that we've gotten through so far in the book of Acts covers about the first five years of the early church. But you'll notice one thing was lacking in this early church, and this is the thing that was lacking. They stayed in Jerusalem. They stayed in Jerusalem. They, and, I, and I don't know if you might say it was because they'd gotten comfortable. I don't know what the excuse is. We see, though, that that wasn't fulfilling what Jesus said would happen. Take a look at Acts 1.8 just briefly. It says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit, this is Jesus talking, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Up until this point, how far had they made it? Jerusalem. Part A, check. Part B, part C, part D, not so much. You see, what happened is they had literally spent these first five years investing in the home base, but they hadn't been willing until this point that we're about to go into to break outside of their comfort zone. 
Sometimes, and this is the big idea of our message this morning, sometimes it takes some kind of challenging catalyst to move us outside of our comfort zone. Anybody notice that even in your own life, just practically speaking, sometimes it takes a little bit of a nudge to push us to be willing to get uncomfortable. My wife and I had a, a wonderful time over Christmas. We were visiting uh, her family who lives up in Vancouver, and we snuck in one day of skiing at Whistler. I don't know if you've ever skied in Whistler, very beautiful uh, spot to ski. And so we're up there and we're trying while our kids are young to try to lay a little bit of a foundation for skiing. Well, we had this as we're going down the hill and so it's literally known as one of the longest runs in the world uh, going down this, this stretch. We were, we'd have different stop points and we'd check and make sure everybody's still together or whatnot. Well, at one of those checkpoints, Alexa, our middle child, was missing in action. And uh, at first, it was like, oh, she's probably coming, 15 minutes passed. Okay, we'll go to the next section, check there, half an hour passed. All of a sudden, it started getting a little bit anxious. Where is Alexa? And the normally pretty calm and reserved mother of, in our family, Adrian, is normally calm and like, okay, we got this. She's got to get the level. All of a sudden, that woman shifted and became a little bit crazed mother bear. And so it was like, all right, this is getting serious. We got to figure out where she's at. It's been a half an hour. You know what I mean? Like she's getting a little bit, I'm like, hon, it's going to be all right. Just calm down. She's like, no, this is serious. So she's like, we're going down to the next level. And in our, out of our kids, uh, our, 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 our Chase is probably the most conservative. He's a very good skier, but he just kind of goes kind of at his own pace. Like he's doing the hill at his pace. And so she goes to Chase. She grabs him by the shoulders. And I even wrote down what she said. She... she <laughs> She, 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 said this, she said this to Chase. She says, Chase, we don't have time to be careful and play it safe. It is time for you to ski like you have never skied before. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, whoa. I was like, she, like, if there was a football speech at halftime, like, we would have for sure won that game. But so anyway, Chase, like, his eyes are like this big. And he's like, he's just rocking, man, just straight down. Like, this, this zigzag stuff, no more. It was like a straight shot down. It was awesome. Like, like a little later, we found Alexa sipping hot chocolate in the guest center. But uh, anyway, <laughs> but, uh, but, but anyway, it was, it was a, a time where the panic of where is our middle child moved us. It was the catalyst to move us out of our comfort zone. What does it take to shake somebody's up to cause them to act a little bit different? from what they've known thus far. I would suggest for the early church, this is the time of shakeup, and the shakeup is attached to the word persecution. Persecution. Up until now, things are going fairly well. We're going to see how per persecution becomes the catalyst for change. Let me pray before we dive in to this section in Acts. God, thank you so much for your word and how it speaks to us still today. How certain principles uh, such as needed catalysts are still a, a reality in our own lives, that we need something to nudge us, to move us. I pray boldly that this morning might even be the catalyst in some of our lives to move us towards more of a life of risk-taking and boldness. I thank you how so many times in Scripture we see when we do step out in faith and are bold about you, you bear fruit from that. Ask that you teach us, that you stretch us. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen. 
So chapter 8, verse 1. This is the second section of Acts we're in now. Let's read together. It says, And Saul approved of his execution. Remember where we ended last time is with the death of Stephen. It's talking about Saul watching this with approval. And it says, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But, Paul, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He draw, dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. This is the early account. Talk about a, a catalyst for change. The, I su- suggest I label this even in your notes. I'd say the time of, of favor, the time of favor concludes. Doesn't seem like that much earlier in the book of Acts. Do you remember saying that, describing the disciples and the new believers as having favor with all of those around them? All of a sudden, this had shifted. And at first, you had seen that the leaders were under attack. You remember in our account of Acts where they're getting thrown in prison, all this stuff. But until now, the regular church attender had been safe. Now the turn has been made where literally there's no one safe anymore. Every believer is now a a target, if you will. To me, I find it fascinating how quickly public opinion can change, right? How how it can slide and shift. And even in a a culture where you have likely at least a a quarter of the population are, are followers of Jesus, followers of the way, now it's shifted and literally they're under attack. Wondering, trying to just even relate this to our own uh, culture and day and time, how you would consider a we're, as Christ followers, if you are Christ follower, how we're perceived in our culture. I, I would say that in our cu- culture, if I were to make a, a, a summary statement, I would say that Christians are tolerated. Say that we're tolerated. We're not, we're not necessarily yet a, a, a target of opposition, but I'd say we're, we're targeted and then, I mean, we're tolerated. But then here's what I, I would also say is that we don't blend very well in a culture that celebrates relative truth and a culture that celebrates tolerance. We don't mesh very well with that as Christ followers. So I would say, man, as we look at our our next 50 years, you can't guarantee that we're always going to be more than just tolerated. Jesus warned us about this in John 15, 18. He said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. We shouldn't be shocked with opposition. In this case, the opposition had a particular name. You see it in the text. What was the name of the opposition? His name was Saul. His name was Saul. We learned about him in the the little section of Scripture prior to this, but Saul was committed to literally eliminating the church in Jerusalem. And you see he's got a, a game plan in place, and this isn't just his idea. We learn later in Acts 26, 10, that he was executing the authority from the chief priests. So he's basically the, the muscle of the law, and he's literally strategically going, what does it say there in the text? Going from home to home, house to house, pulling out men and women and throwing them in prison. 
interesting when you read sections of Scripture. You can read that and just be like, oh, yeah, that must have been, must have been tough. But can you imagine the chaos that would ensue? If a, imagine just in, in, in Thousand Oaks. If there was this, this all of a sudden literally knock on the door and going from house to house, anybody that proclaims Christ being drugged to prison, this was a huge thing happening for the local church. It was definitely a difficult time. And you, you see there, there that all of a sudden favor has shifted. And it's easy when you first look at that account to get kind of fired up and angry at Saul. Like, man, what a, what a jerk. What a terrible person. But then you get reminded of Jesus's words on the cross, forgive them for they know not what they do. I would suggest that Saul was just acting out on what he believed to be true. You see, we've talked about this before, that we're in a world that literally has blinders on, and as frustrating as it might be dealing with people with blinders, you can't get angry at somebody that literally can't see right. You can't get angry. So here he's taking, he's moving from house to house, and it says that he's ravaging the church. And you see, what does the church do in response? What does it happens there in the text? They scatter. They scatter. They start heading all different directions. And you notice where it says that they head Judea and Samaria. Isn't that fascinating? Uh, where they ended up heading. It says that they, they made sure even in their flight, though, to take time to lament uh, Stephen's death. It's a word of a, it actually says great lamentation, the idea of just like just pouring out grief. I think they are genuinely sad at the loss of Stephen. I was reading a little bit this week, and the, in the, the typical Jewish person there followed what was called the Mishnah, which was extra biblical laws that they lived by there. And in the Mishnah, it was forbidden to lament somebody that was executed for breaking the law. So to some degree, this was a form of a protest of Stephen's death, but either way, I'm pretty confident that they are heartbroken as, as they watch this play itself out, and it's probably a, a pretty dark time in the church where they're wondering, how can God do something like this? How can he take something so miserable and make something good out of it? But what I love about God is that's what he's in the business of doing. Take a look in verse 4. It says, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. You see, it's interesting when you think about what happened to this, this church group. Usually, when something's scary and fearful, what do you tend to do? tend to want to hide and be, and be quiet and, and, and try to be reserved. But instead, what does it say? Oh, they, they just picked up what they were already doing. They're like, hey, we've been talking about Jesus in Jerusalem. Now we're just going to bring him to a new location, and we're going to talk about him more. Can you imagine how frustrating this must be for the enemy? If you think about it, what, what, what would Satan want most to happen through this is he'd want people to go silent. He's wanting as best as he can to shut up these Christians, but instead they take their show on the road. I don't know if you uh, grew up watching the, the Coyote and the Roadrunner. Do you guys remember this, this cartoon? That was a, one, of the, one of my personal favorites. How you can watch something for like hours on end and there's no words. But usually the account in this was what? 
basically the coyote had all of these plans to kill or to take out the roadrunner, trap them, destroy them, blow them up, TNT, whatever. And how did the, those, all, those plans always result? It would backfire every single time. What, what he intended to do to the roadrunner always either came back on himself or was just a major colossal failure. And I was thinking about that, and you're like, why are you bringing that up? I was like, that's the story of the early church. That's the story of the early church. Every effort, every attempt to destroy the church only resulted in it prospering and expanding even more. We're the result even here today, a couple thousand years ago, because it didn't work, because the, the persecution didn't bring things to a stop. Instead, they chose, rather than to be quiet and sneaky and hide, they chose to proclaim. My, uh, my kids are still at an age where they like to play uh, hide and seek a little bit. And uh, the other day, they're like, I, I usually am like the, the lazy dad that doesn't participate. But the other dad, uh, the other day, I was like, all right, I'll, I'll play with you guys. And I'm like, I, I used to play this as a kid. I'll do great. So we're in the house. I realized I'm a terrible hide and seeker. I, I, try, I tried sliding under my son Chase's bed and only my head fit. And so like, I just decided I'm just staying there. So that was my hiding place. And they came in, they're like, dad, your whole body's sticking out. I'm like, I know it wouldn't fit. And so, 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 so I was thinking about that with the, the early churches, like, man, they're not going to a, a hide approach. They're staying out in the open and proclaiming Christ boldly, just like they did back in Jerusalem. And that's what makes us, as the church, unstoppable. That's what makes us unstoppable when it doesn't matter where you're put, you're going to proclaim Christ anyway. Do you see how that works? Like, if, if you're one of those people that has a mindset of proclaiming Christ, and you're like, hey, it doesn't matter where they place me, somewhere where they tell me not to do it, or somewhere where it's allowed, I'm going to proclaim Christ regardless. Do you see how that makes you unstoppable. We used to tease my mom when we were growing up because my mom was known for literally talking to anyone, anytime about Jesus. And she had a, a real subtle approach. She'd go up to strangers and say things like, do you know Jesus? And you know, just, you know, subtle things like that. And so we, we'd joke about it because she kind of had like a, a running ministry. She'd come, we, we'd go to a mall, we'd go into stores and she'd be sitting in like the middle just hanging out. She'd have like a, a group of women around her she's evangelizing to at the, at the local mall. Even on family road trips, we had stopped to go to a public rest area bathroom. Everybody else would be back in the car and we'd be like, hey, where, where's mom at? My dad would be like, it's okay, she has a bathroom ministry. And so she'd be like in the bathroom leading women to Christ. It was awesome. But this idea, this picture that I, I, that, that I see here of the early church, it didn't matter where you put them, they were going to proclaim Christ, and that made the church unstoppable. And so here it says, it uses the word for Philip, it says that he proclaimed. The idea of proclaim is, is the idea of lifting, it's the word herald, or, or with a loud voice. So it wasn't like a subtle, it's like, man, he's, wherever he's going, you're, you're going to hear about it. Philip, if you're, you're wondering, isn't the apostle Philip, because we already learned they stayed in Jerusalem and held down the home base. Philip is kind of a, a cool thing. Philip was the second of the deacons that were introduced in Acts 6-5. So it's kind of cool. The first deacon that they, was mentioned was Stephen, 
When Stephen's life came to an end, guess what happened? Well, Philip just keeps on going with it. So it was, it, was a, it was an unstoppable force. So he continues. He's literally known as the very first missionary mention. And I love why he's actually mentioned here is because it wasn't necessarily that he was being bold for Christ. It's the location in which he was going. What do you see in your text? Where did Philip head? Samaria. Hmm. Anybody that spent time in the Bible, was Samaria a place that was a popular vacation destination for the Jew? No, definitely not. You couldn't possibly have a people group that was more hated than Samaritans. I was reading a little bit about that this week. Maybe if you've been around the church for a while, you have a sense of why that, that's true. A, a Samaritan was considered somebody that was a, a half-breed. They were half Jew and half another race. In the, the, where, where it all started was in 722 BC, the Assyrians captured northern part of Israel, and, uh, and, and, and that was when they started intermixing and marrying with Assyrians. And so they believed that that group of people had polluted the race, and so true Jews wanted nothing to do with them. It was, a real, it was a real issue in that day and age. And in fact, somebody that was traveling, a Jew, would literally avoid that area altogether, would literally travel around the entire outskirts just to avoid the city. Well, Philip's like, hey, if I'm going to go proclaim Christ, I'm going straight to the most hated people group. How awesome is that? The, the, the idea that he understood that maybe our traditional views of who needs Jesus Christ or who's going to respond well to Jesus Christ is shattered by the gospel. Because the gospel isn't concerned at all about ethnicity. The gospel is for every single person on this planet. So Philip's like, all right, man, if, if we're going to be scattering, I'm going straight there. I love if you think about it, he's just continuing what Jesus Christ had actually started. Do you remember with his interaction with the woman at the well? He went there and was pro proclaiming the, the good news even to that, that region when he was there. So Philip was just picking up where Jesus left off. A lot of us that grew up in Awana have somewhere along the line tucked the, the verse, the, John 4, 35, that the fields are ripe for harvest. Do you remember that verse? The fields are ripe for harvest. We've tucked that into our, our, our mental bank and literally, when Jesus was referring to ripe fields for harvest, he was looking at Samaria. That's what he was referring to. So Philip's like, all right, I'm going to head there. So he takes a risk. He gets outside of his, the expected people that you would talk to, heads to an unexpected people group, and it literally, we're going to see as we progress, bears tons of fruit. My question for us, just as we're trying to apply this to our own lives, is my question for you is when you think through your circle of influence, who are your unexpected people group? Who are, the, who are the people that maybe you've been around for a long time, but you've assumed they're not interested in spiritual things? You've made assumptions that your, your dentist isn't interested in talking about Jesus Christ. You've assumed that that soccer mom isn't going to chat about that on the sidelines with you. You've made assumptions that this unexpected people group isn't interested. See here in verse 6, though, that the world is interested. Take a look. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to 
what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs what, that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. I think I've mentioned this before in churches, the idea that we bought into this lie that people around us aren't interested in spiritual things. But I would suggest, based on this and even our own experience, that people are starved for spiritual truth. People are wanting to connect the dots. I imagine in, in this area how many people even in the recent days have, have laid awake at night staring at their ceiling and wondering, what in the world is this life for? What happens when I die? What, what, what's the point of all this? What sustains me? What keeps my heart beating? I'm sure there's people we're surrounded with on a regular basis that are starved to have those questions answered. And you see it here in the text, the crowds with one accord, not a Honda, but paid attention to what was being said. They, they, their ears tuned up. They're like, wait a second. We've been waiting for the Messiah too. We've been waiting for rescue. We're starved to hear this. It's been fun seeing in uh, John Irwin's life just kind of a, a growing uh, passion and, and desire to interact with people about the gospel message. He was telling me recently about a, a guy that he plays racquetball with, and in a conversation that he was having with this particular guy, he asked him, because the guy had before had said, you know, I have, I have uh, issues with the Bible. I have tons of questions. Well, John asked a question. He said, man, why don't, you, why don't you take some time and maybe outline what some of those questions are? Usually that's the end of the conversation. People won't take it further, right? Anybody else notice that? They have issues with the Bible, but if you push them to actually say what those issues are, they can't think of any. Well, th this particular guy, as, he, as he's interacting with them, about a, a week later, I don't know the timeline exactly, but got him the list of like, 37 questions that he had about the Bible, every single one of them, like clearly well thought through and outlined. I think he just cut and paste from a website. But uh, anyway, but it was fun to, to watch those. And now John is spending just week after week just tackling those different questions with him. Again, to the point of people are more interested than we assume. People are, are wondering, they're trying to connect the dots if we'll take risk and boldly bring it up. If we'll engage with it, people are willing to respond. We see there that they're paying attention. Now, you might wonder in, uh, in, when you're looking at that, you're like, yeah, but they're probably paying attention because what? Because there's miracles happening all around the, uh, the, the message there. So it's kind of cool. The paralyzed are being healed. The lame are being healed. Evil spirits are being thrown out. You imagine that would have been caused quite a stir in the city. All of a sudden, you're like, wait a second, Some, something's going on here. So that was definitely a factor. I was thinking about that because you're just like, wow, what would that have been like? What would it be like if someone came into our city here and all of a sudden people that have been sick for years and couldn't walk and are in wheelchairs and, and then that description of evil spirits being thrown out. I feel like our culture isn't really willing to label it that. I think we give other labels to it, but I would suggest that's still as much of a reality in our culture as it was back then. Like what C.S. Lewis notes, he says, Satan and his demons adapt themselves to whatever worldview prevails in a given society. They are equally at home with Western materialists and third world magicians. It's not as if he's not still active and working. I love that Jesus chose, though, 
to engage in this new people group the exact same way that he engaged in Jerusalem. He's like, man, when I was starting my ministry, when we were starting our, our church and building it there, I attached miracles to confirm the message. Well, in Samaria, I'm going to do the exact same thing because I don't elevate one above the other. I'm using the same strategy for both. And you love to see how they responded. We'll get a little bit more glimpse in it next week. But look in verse 8. You see how literally they responded. It says, so there was much joy in the city. It's such a cool word. It's just a simple little line there. But I think that simple little line says a lot especially in a culture that's so starved for something to satisfy, for something to actually bring joy. Now, all of a sudden, the society is surrounded with new life everywhere they look, new life spiritually, new life with a, a demon-possessed guy they knew is set free. They, you, you see, the new life is something that has the potential to bring joy like none other. You think about even in the, the local church, who would you say, here's a question for you, who would you say in the local church is the most happy volunteers? Who are the very most, is, is it the sound people, is it the worship people? I would suggest, maybe we can make this a little more formal, I would suggest the most joyful volunteers in the local church are the ladies or men working in the nursery. With a, I'm not talking with the, the kids once they've gotten a little bratty, like the elementary. I'm talking like with the newborn babies. Like you see the, the moms coming out of there, like got the biggest smiles on their face because they enjoyed them and then got to hand them back at the end of that hour. That's the person with the most smiles on their face, I would suggest, because they're drawn to new life. My, my wife is hilarious. She gets with the little babies and she sniffs them. Like, like loves it. she's like, oh, I just love, the, I love their smell. I'm like, who does that? Do any other moms do that? What? I, don't, I don't get it. But anyway, you do that. That's weird. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, but, but anyway, th this idea of being drawn to new life and joy just invading, where your joy is one of those things that sneaks up on you. You're like, I don't know why I'm just so, so happy. It's not because I have something or got something. It's something that wells up internally because joy comes only in the name of Jesus Christ. And that's what he brought to their community. And it all started on the other end of what? Persecution. Something miserable became the catalyst that moved them out, and when they moved out, they proclaimed Christ. They were willing to be bold on the other side of this miserable thing. My hope for us as a church, just as a people, and as personally as I'm preaching to myself as well, that this year, 2018, would be marked with us with more of a willingness to break out of our comfort zones, take risks, herald the name of Jesus Christ, proclaim him, that this wouldn't be a year of playing it safe, that this wouldn't be a year of being careful, this would be a year of skiing like we never skied before. Let me pray as we wrap up. God, thank you so much for your word and this glimpse into possibility, the possibility of what could happen if we got past our fears, if we got past our idea of people not being interested, if we got past our fears of consequence, if we got past our fears of people disliking us, 
and we boldly proclaimed what has happened in our life to those around us. God, I pray that we would be a church marked by that. God, I pray for divine opportunities. I pray for even in our circles of influence, softened hearts. God, that this might be a year marked by risk. And it wouldn't be something that required persecution as a catalyst, that we're even the catalyst of a preacher standing in an old church might even move us towards. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen.